Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. In most places around the country, school is about to begin, including at the nation's colleges and universities, where about 2 million high school graduates will soon start college, an example of the importance we place on college education today. Yet 40% of those incoming freshmen will drop out before graduating, many with debt, limited job prospects, and shattered confidence. Why is this number so high? Why are some colleges succeeding in keeping kids engaged and others failing so miserably? Are there best practices? Is this simply another reflection of the economic divide in America? And is it happening at elite universities? Can we test for it? And what about the consequences if the problem goes ignored? All of this is part of a new book by my guest, David Kerr. David Kerp is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley. He's a contributing writer to the New York Times, a fellow at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the author of numerous books and articles, and he served on President Obama's education policy team during the 2008 transition. His latest book is The College Dropout Scandal. It is my pleasure to welcome David Kerp back to this program. David, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, it's great to be back. It's great to have you here. These numbers of 40% of of incoming freshmen dropping out before they finish college, to what extent have those numbers been increasing over the years? Did this happen all of a sudden? Talk a little bit about how we got here. Well, the numbers have been pretty constant over time. 800,000 students, 800,000 freshmen, all of whom have it in mind to get a degree, wind up being disappointed. That's astonishing. And to what extent is that coming from the increased number of students going to college, increased pressure on students that they need to go to college? Well, I think it's important that students understand that there are alternatives, because although we talk about college or career, in in real terms, most folks are talking about college, free tuition, et cetera, et cetera. But those numbers really haven't changed, and that's important in understanding what's going on. Universities have been failing these students for a good long time, and the difference now is, as you said, we've got best because we have tools to address this issue, and the scandal is the universities aren't using them. Talk a little bit about the places, and you detail several of them uh, in the college dropout scandal, the places where this issue is being addressed, what some of these best practices are looking like. Different places. City University of New York and and Georgia State. So City University of New York is remarkable because it not only tries out new ideas, it it puts them to the gold standard research test done by an outside consulting firm. And what it's done with the community colleges and what it is now doing with the four-year colleges, the bachelor's granting colleges, is developing a a program that provides financial support for things like books, which cost over $1,000 a year, transportation to college, which is a very practical concern, costs a ton of money. They get free transportation at last dollar tuition. But what they will tell you is most important is the fact that they have very strong, capable, we have your back advisors. I was just talking to a couple of those students yesterday, and both of them said, you know, my advisor was, was like, it's like having a second mom. I think that's critical. And if the numbers are staggering. So at the community colleges, the graduation rate, the three-year graduation rate from uh, community college, um, which overall is 16%, 16%, is 64% now. So that's quite a leap. And the fir- they've, they've now, as I said, extended this program to the four-year colleges. And the first class that graduated <clears throat> from John Jay College uh, in New York, a criminal justice college, which enrolls mostly poor 
their graduation rate overall is also 16% in the first year of this program. 53% of those students graduated in four years or less. That is, they graduated on time. The two students I talked to actually were taking master's courses while they were doing their bachelor's degree, and one of them graduated in three and a half years. It's not as though they're geniuses. You don't need a, a particularly high GPA or test scores to get into that school. And those results say a lot about what it is that universities can accomplish if they put their mind to it. Is this happening? Are the numbers greater among first-generation college students? No. The, number, you mean the numbers, no. the numbers of, of students with, you look at the, at the population we're talking about, I talk about new-gen students, which is first-generation students, underrepresented minorities, and poor students in the measure of poverty is on Pell Grants. Um, and the new-gen students don't do particularly well as compared to those groups. Um, and the improvement is an across-the-board improvement. If we take, for example, Georgia State University, which is one of the stars of the book, I mean, there, all those new-gen students, every one of those groups is now graduating at a rate that's higher than the overall graduation rate for the university. That is, they're beating out the Anglo students, to put it bluntly. That's astonishing. And they're doing a different set of things, including using big data to figure out what students are in, are in trouble. And then they're using the same kind of close-grained advising that Cooney is using. They're doing other things as well. Let me give you one example. Sure. A lot of when they discovered that seniors were dropping out in their last semester, they went and looked to see why, and the answer turned out to be that they were they'd run out of scholarship money from the state. They were $500 or $1,000 short. That was what was keeping them from graduating. And so the university decided, okay, we're going to give them that money. We're not going to loan them that money. We're going to give them that money. And that boosted graduation rates enormously. It's just smart. It's just common sense. It just takes looking to see, okay, what are the barriers for our students graduating? In New York, it's as simple as how do you pay for the subway? In Georgia State, it's let's take a look at that last semester and what's going on. Those strategies and others have been shown to make a difference. And so, again, the reason I'm talking about scandal is that it is scandalous that a lot of universities talk the talk. If you ask university presidents, they'll tell you, oh, we care about college completion, student success, etc. If you ask them what they're doing, they're doing little trivial things, and they're doing them in isolation, and that doesn't work. And to what extent is this same thing happening among elite colleges and universities? Well, elite, elite colleges don't have a dropout problem. But what they have, and what I write about in the book, is they have what I call a belonging problem. That is, if you want to know the one thing that universities need to do to keep students engaged, it's to give them a sense, to show them, not just tell them, that they really are members of a community that values their contribution. They're, just, they're not just folks who are writing checks. And that's not easy to do. Uh, Everything that Cooney is doing, everything that Georgia State and the other schools I profile are doing, really has that as the ultimate aspiration. And I write in the book about one of those elite schools, Amherst College, not a dropout problem, but they've admitted a lot of first-gen, new-gen students, more than any other small college, liberal arts college, elite liberal arts college in the country. But admitting them is one thing. Making them feel at home at the place is something else, and it took a real explosion what they call the Amherst Uprising, to get college to take them seriously. And it has, and it's making a big difference. But, so belonging is not just a dropout problem. 
Belonging is an engagement and college issue that every university needs to look at. How much is this concern filtering down into recruitment and selection as far as colleges are concerned? That's an interesting question. I think the answer is it's not. That when you ask students, you know, how did you decide to go to school A and school B, even those who've done their homework, even those who know that this, this school is really strong in the, in the subject I want to major in, this school has a reputation for, you know, being a, a great place to go, they have no idea, their parents have no idea of the graduation rate. So you can take a student who goes to two schools that look exactly the same on paper in terms of who's admitted, and you'll see really different graduation rates. And you can look at schools that have exactly the same graduation rate, and there are really huge differences in the gap between the new-gen students and the overall student body. And I was, I was doing this calculation um, for New York uh, because I'm writing a piece for the Daily News. I compared two of the colleges in their state system. It's like the Cal State system. Exactly the same admissions profile, a 20% gap in graduation rates, a 25% gap in the, in the distance between the new-gen students and the overall rate. And sadly a student is thinking about applying to one of those schools or both of those schools, doesn't have that in mind, and they should. And one of the hopes of this book is that parents and students will understand this is a question they need to ask. And if they go online and look at college results online, collegeresults.org, they're going to get answers to these questions and comparisons. That's essential, and too few students are doing it. Are there more things that high schools should be doing in terms of preparation that can help with this problem? Well, I think increasingly the best colleges are connecting to high schools so that there is an understanding of what is required when you go to college. College, if you think back about going to college, it's such a different experience. For the first time, you're on your own. You've got to make your own decisions. You don't have somebody doing the laundry or, or cooking the meals. And that's tough to, to pull off for many people. They're often big in places that are big and you're insecure. And if you have real problems with, with academics, then, you're, then you are going to be in, in, uh, in trouble. And I'd suggest two things that, that high schools can do. One of them is obvious, and that is they can make sure that the math and English courses particularly and the science courses that they're teaching align with the requirements of the universities. It's depressing but true that in many states, the exam that students have to pass, the state exams, in order to graduate from high school, really are testing eighth grade knowledge. So the students come to college thinking, you know, I can ace this. And they discover, oh, no, this is much tougher than I imagined. So that's one thing that can happen. Something that you might not think about is that high schools can show students that it's okay to talk to their teachers and their classmates when they have problems, when they can't understand something. Not to just borrow in a, in, a, you know, in, a, in a corner and say, gee, I can't do this. Because that ability, that willingness to reach out for help is a key in getting students to graduate. You talk about the importance of data in coming up with solutions. What about the value of data in anticipating those students that are clearly at risk of not graduating or could be at risk of not graduating? Well, several of the colleges that I profile, like Georgia State, um, have summer programs 
that are targeted at these students. And, you know, again, when I talked to, to the students who went through that program, they said, gee, when I got this letter saying there's the summer program you need to go through, I thought, okay, it's the program for dummies. And the way the best colleges organize this is that they're offering classes that some of the students already enroll, some of the upperclassmen need to take. So already these entering students, these at-risk students, are meeting students who are already in the institution. That's great both because it shows them, no, you're not a dummy, and because it gives them a network going in. So when I talk to, again, when I talk to these students, they say, you know, when we got to September and we started taking regular classes, we really had a leg up. And indeed, those students wind up graduating at a higher rate than, than students who are even, even don't look as likely to be at risk, but who didn't have that experience. What are we seeing with respect to community colleges versus four-year colleges and, and, and the success where those institutions work together in, in really creating better pathways? Well, in the course of writing this book and doing the research, I became a real fan of community colleges. Because all of their graduation rates may not be great. They really try their hardest to do the kinds of su- support, individual supports, that you would want any college to do. They're operating on a pittance. They get very little state aid. Tuition is either zero or very small. There's, they really have no, they can't go out and raise money privately. So, you know, they're working on tiny, tiny budgets. Um, and it's really on the, on the universities to go reach out and support those people. I love University of California, Berkeley, where I've taught for a long time. It ought to have closer ties to the local community colleges like Laney College. It ought to be supporting those students. The best of these programs that I write about um, is in Orlando where Valencia College, which might be the best community college in the country, and the University of Central Florida, which actually is the best university nobody's ever heard of, have really teamed up. It's not just that students who graduate from Valencia are automatically admitted to University of Central Florida, it's that the professors work to make that transition as seamless as possible. And that ought to be a national model. Talk a little bit about the integration in a place like Long Beach that you write about in the book. Well, what Long Beach has managed to do, it's not just the university, it's the community. You've got to go back and understand how in the 1990s, Long Beach, having lost the naval base, was really on the skids. And the, you know, the city fathers and, and mothers got together, and they wanted to do all the normal economic development things. They realized, however, if you don't improve the education system, nobody's going to come. And so they have built a real honest-to-God system which connects pre-K and K-12 and community college and the university, uh, Long Beach State University. Um, This is not just verbiage. It's real. I sat through some of the meetings that those guys have, and there's, they leave their egos at the door, and that's often a problem in making cooperation happen. Long Beach State has demonstrated its commitment to these students by saying, we're going to make it easier for students who come from the Long Beach area to get admitted to our university than for students from elsewhere in California. Long Beach State has one of the highest number of applicants in the country. They could move up the rankings in a heartbeat if they just started taking students from, you know, with the, with the fanciest looking scores, many of them coming from the Bay Area. But they've said, nope, our commitment is to the locals. And they pay a price in terms of their, you know, rankings on the, you know, all-important U.S. News and World Report 
all important to, to schools that are so concerned about status. And most of the schools I write about are saying, now, you know, that's not, that's not our game. We're not trying to be a top 10 or a top 20 school. We're going to educate the students we have. And, in fact, at Long Beach, the students who come from the area, whose credentials, as I say, are less fancy than those who come from elsewhere, actually graduate at a higher rate. You get, when you're in Long Beach, this palpable sense of Long Beach pride. And that's what's happening here at that institution. That's hard for other places to pull off because it really does depend on the the superintendent and the mayor's office and the community college president and the university president working together often a very difficult thing to do. But when it happens, as in Long Beach, you get fantastic results up and down the line. Is there an urban versus rural divide in terms of, of how this problem is playing out? I think that it's a great question. I didn't look at rural schools. So I'm, I really am at this point hypothesizing, not, uh, not, not asserting with any great comfort. But I think that the differences have to do with the backgrounds of the students, who it is, what kind of education rural kids have, who they are, what the, what the racial and ethnic composition is of students from rural areas versus urban areas. Um, my hunch is that if we looked at schools from poor rural areas, their graduation rates wouldn't look very different from um, colleges uh, that draw most of their students from poor urban areas. So you, uh, the underlying for all of these schools, Again, from Amherst College, right there at the top of the heap, to the students who flunked all of their entrance exams for City University of New York Community College. That is the bottom of the heap. All those places, and the rural schools are no exception to this, getting the students committed to the institution, making sure that the institution is committed to the students. That's the underlying challenge. What role, if any, has testing played in all of this? Well, um... I think testing is important to colleges that care about where they are in the, in the status wars. We know that the data shows that the correlation between the scholastic aptitude test, the SATs, and college success is really pretty modest, so modest that a whole bunch of schools have said, we're not going to require that. And interesting that the University of Chicago has now joined the ranks of those, of those schools. But again, this is, you give up testing, and you're saying, okay, U.S. News, you care a lot about testing. We're going to pay a price in the rankings. Well, if that's the way it goes, we'd rather pay attention to our students in those rankings. That's a very, very brave decision for an institution to be, uh, to be making. Um, it's, I like what the University of California does. They have what's called a holistic admission system, which you throw everything you know, into the, into, the, uh, into the mix and try to figure out how students are doing. So, for example, a kid from the inner city uh, whose parents are immigrants and who's a first-generation college student and who has you know, 1,200 board scores is a more impressive individual than somebody from the Burbs, wealthy parents, private school, has it all, who has 1,300 board scores. And that's something that an admissions policy ought to take into account, and that's what... That's what the holistic policies are designed to do. Should those all-important rankings include or, or really be encouraged to in- include graduation rates? Yes. And they do. They do. But again, over, if you look overall 
There is a direct correlation between the selectivity of admissions and the graduation rate. So if you include those graduation rates, you're by and by and large, you're going to reinforce existing perceptions. The big exception, the important exception, is that schools that are doing the kinds of proven success strategies and are graduating more students than the demographics might suggest, those schools are, be, are going to be standouts. And they ought to be able to publicize the fact, and do, I hope, publicize the fact that they really are better at this than their supposed rivals. And if U.S. News can help shine a light on that, that'd be great. And is there any nexus between the cost of a school and its graduation rate? Have you found any correlations there? What I do know is that students leave college generally with a, who are taking out loans with a debt of about $25,000, um, which doesn't sound extraordinary to somebody who's, uh, who's listening to this program, my guess is. But it's a big deal, students from, from poor families. And those colleges, the top elite colleges, that can pay the freight for all these students and basically cost zero, um, are going to take the money worries away from their students. Um, and as state universities see their funds cut, 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 as states disinvest in universities, and California, thank goodness, is, is turning the corner on that, uh, on that issue, but still has a long ways to go. As, as state support has been cut, tuition has gone up. And even though California has been able to compensate for that, by and large, by providing strong tuition support for students who come from low- and middle-income families, you look at the sticker price of these schools, you scare off a lot of students. And universities get blamed for raising tuition, but the question is, there's an equation here. There are costs, and there are two big factors that most colleges have, two big assets. One of them is state aid, and one of them is tuition. You lose the one, you've got to increase the other. And so, you know, the other thing that these universities find themselves doing is recruiting out-of-state, because they charge higher tuition for out-of-state students. If I recall correctly, University of Oregon has more out-of-state students than in-state students. And that's really a shame because those universities were really designed to provide primarily a first-rate education for students from their own state. And they're being forced by money pressures to look elsewhere. David Kirp, his book is The College Dropout Scandal. It's just out from Oxford University Press. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us. It's been great talking with you. Thank you.